You are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine, and broadcast on 1310 AM Portland, streaming live each week at 11 AM on WLOBradio.com. Show summaries are available at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. We live so much in Western culture in our heads, and we need to get down more into our hearts more full-time and use our hand-to-heart connection in working with the land. The only way we're going to build our infrastructure is from the ground up, and we're going to have to build it ourselves. And so what I say is if you get money into the hands of the farmers, they are true entrepreneurs, and they are going to create the infrastructure to support their products. And then in five years, you will see Maine Foods as the premier foods in the Boston market again. We're going to take it back from California. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Booth, UNE, the University of New England, and Akari. Hello, this is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 32, Earth Day, which is airing for the first time on Earth Day, April 22nd, 2012, on WLOB Radio, and available by podcast at Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. And with me in the studio today, I have Genevieve Morgan, who is my co-host and wellness editor for Maine Magazine. Hi, Genevieve. Hi, Lisa. Happy Earth Day. Thank you. I think um, every day is Earth Day, right, since we live on this lovely planet? Well, I think it should be. And I think that's been sort of the goal of the Earth Day movement, from what I can tell. And today we have joining us landscaped architect and author Ted Carter, who wrote the book Reunion, How We Heal Our Broken Connection to the Earth. We also have Penny Jordan from Jordan Farms and David Banks and Bill Lunt from Tidewater Conservation in Falmouth. I think it's such an appropriate show based on what I've been reading in the newspapers about how this past year was the warmest year, April to April, since I've been keeping track of temperatures, which, you know, whether you believe in global warming or not, shows that something's shifting. Well, there's always a lot of shifting that seems to be um, going back and forth. One of my favorite, I guess, theories, which came about when I was studying biology and chemistry at Bowdoin, is the whole Gaia hypothesis and this, this possibility that perhaps the Earth itself is an organism and that all of us as little beings are little organelles within the organism, and it's just one big... The ecosystem is an organism. I love this idea that it's a living, breathing thing. And as such, there is going to be a lot of shifting and moving back and forth. I always think of Horton Hears a Who, that Dr. Seuss book, where there's the whole community on the thistle. Right. And I think that's actually a very sort of medical and wellness sort of thing, where this whole, I think it was Hook and the microscope, and there's always little something within a something within a something. And um, it is macrocosm within the microcosm within the macrocosm. So it's an interesting thing to think about ourselves as not being separate in any way from what's going on around us and inside of us. And Earth plays a big role in the five elements of Chinese medicine. Right. Absolutely. Um, the earth is associated, the element of the earth is associated with the spleen and the stomach. It is sort of the, the central thing from which things are nurtured and grow. And it's the, um, if you think about the late summer, there are five elements. They're all associated with a season. And of course, we have, we think that we have only four seasons. In Maine, we probably only have mud season and snow season. What are they, season. mud season and house guests? Yeah, so there you go, right? But um, most people have winter, spring, summer, and fall. And in Chinese medicine, we have five seasons. And there's that late, that late summer season. So that is the season of the earth. And what, what do people who have the earth element predominant in their biochemistry or their temperament, how do they manifest the earth? 
Well, the earth is a very sort of mothering, nurturing. You think about people who are sort of the earth mamas, you know, they and they tend to be um, in Maine, we have this interesting term called spleeny, which means maybe a little squeamish, but that's really not what it's like in Chinese medicine. People who have this sort of spleen element, um, they do tend to be very nurturing and caring and giving. And what I notice a lot actually in women is over time, their spleen gets a little disrupted because they're so nurturing and they're so caring and giving that they actually kind of retain, they'll, in a strange way, they'll retain fluid and they'll become almost squishy. Mm. So, um, And the spleen is crucial to the immune system. It's crucial to the immune system. And it's important to, to note that in Chinese medicine, um, the spleen is probably the pancreas. Um, in ancient Chinese texts, the Neijing, um, it's probably not so much the spleen as we think of it in Western medicine. So um, the pancreas was all about um, enzymes and the ability to digest. So the spleen in Western medicine is really the immune system and, and blood cells. But, you know, there's always a little bit of fuzziness there. So it is, it's about nurturing one way or the other. So talking about nurturing and Earth Day, because that's what we're talking about today, um, we actually find that if you spend time in nature, then it can be very healing in and of itself. And I know that you, in your own life, have spent some time with seedlings lately. Is that true? I have. I've been nursing my little windowsill garden, and it's been so exciting. Now I have maybe uh, three, four-inch tall plants. And um, I live in the city in Portland. And actually, because of all the – I live in the West End and all of the lead paint that has been accumulating in the soil – through the decades and, and hundreds of years, you can't, you're not supposed to eat food that's grown in the soil in the West End. So it's a little bit of a dilemma for me now because I'm going to have to be doing a lot of transplanting. But, um, but it's, it is a small connection that I can make physically getting my hands in the earth. And uh, it's just been grounding for me and a terrific experience. So I encourage anybody who has any light water and a pot to go out and, and grow something Start now, and then you can put it in the ground or put it in a bigger pot by the time the last frost happens, which supposedly by the Farmer's Almanac, you shouldn't be putting your seedlings in the ground until after the full moon, first full moon in May, and okay. then you're safe. Okay. That's wow. my, my earth wisdom today. Very good. It's good to have some earth wisdom. And I hope that our guests coming up are going to have additional earth wisdom for us. We can't wait to talk to Ted Carter, Penny Jordan. David Banks and Bill Lunt. Um, we're glad that they're here to celebrate Earth Day with us today. We on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast are pleased to be sponsored by the University of New England. The University of New England specifically sponsors our Wellness Innovations segment. And this week's wellness innovation is from the March 1st, 2012 issue of Nature. An international research team has unearthed and investigated an entire fossil forest dating back 385 million years. The Gilboa Fossil Forest in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York is generally referred to as the oldest fossil forest. Yet by scientific standards, it has remained mythical. Researchers describe bases of the Gilboa trees as spectacular bowl-shaped depressions up to nearly two meters in diameter, surrounded by thousands of roots. These are known to be the bases of trees up to about 10 meters or 32 feet in height that looked something like a palm tree or tree fern. Their findings demonstrate that the oldest forest at Gilboa was a lot more ecologically complex than suspected and probably contained a lot more carbon locked up as wood than previously known and will enable more refined speculation about the way in which the evolution of forests changed the earth. For more information about this wellness innovation, visit doctorlisa.org for more information about the very innovative University of New England, visit une.edu. This portion of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast has been brought to you by the University of New England, UNE, an innovative health sciences university grounded in the liberal arts. UNE is the number one educator of health professionals in Maine. Learn more about the University of New England at UNE. Dot edu.
Today on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we have the good fortune to be speaking with an individual who is very well known in his own right, but has been featured um, several times by Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design, and there was an article written about him um, in the April 2011 issue of Maine Home Design. We're happy to have here Ted Carter, who is a landscape um, architect and also author of the book, Reunion, How We Heal Our Broken Connection to the Earth, which was co-authored by Ellen Gunter and for which a foreword was written by a very well-known individual known um, whose name is Carolyn Mace. So, Ted, the, the studio is just resonating with all the mm. positive energy you brought in. Mm. And, Thank uh, you. It's really great to have you here. Wonderful to be here. And I have Genevieve Morgan sitting next to me. Great. Hi, Ted. Happy Earth Day. Thank you very much. We thought it was appropriate to have you come in and speak about Earth Day because your book, which I've, I must admit I haven't written the, read the entire thing, I started reading and I realized that this is pretty much the, this is the core of what Earth Day is trying to do, is to bring us back to the Earth and understand our connection to the Earth. And that's what you do. That's correct. Tell that me is. about what you professionally do, and then we'll talk about some of the interesting sort of offshoots, so to speak. Um, well, what I try to do, you know, in life we have job career calling. We, we start out in life with a job so we can pay the rent and, 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 and take care of the fundamentals of living. And then we move into the career aspect of our lives. And then we move into the calling aspect. And I'm in my calling years. Um, I'm 55 years old. I've been in this business since I was a teenager. Um, and it started out very much as a job and making money, and it was all about making money. And then it went into the artistic endeavor, which was more the career piece. But as I've aged and as I've matured in my business and in my life's profession, uh, it has gone into the calling sector, which is the spiritual aspect of this work. And uh, I, what I try to do is I in, try to I incorporate the spirit of people's people's spirit with the spirit of the land and try to get them to see the land as sacred and see the land as part of who they are. We're chemically made of the earth and we're part of the earth and we're not separate. And we see ourselves as separate and the head energy, um, six chakra really separates that and that's the place of conflict. We live so much in Western culture in our heads and we need to get down more into our hearts more full time and use our hand-to-heart connection in working with the land. What was your background? How did you get to a place, well, even when you start with that, got to make a living. How did you get to the place where you were tilling the soil and working with the land? Well, my mother um, had an organic garden in the early 70s, very early 70s, and before it was really fashionable, it was kind of a hippie thing to do, and she grew sprouts in the basement and under lights. And uh, so I grew up with uh, uh, that kind of understanding. She grew up in the Midwest in farm country in Carl Sandburg area. And um, uh, I just, I don't know, it was a natural calling. I knew from the time I was eight years old what I wanted to do. I My dad used to, uh, well, he brought two big, huge loads of sand in the backyard, a pile of bricks, and uh, he said, go play. And we spent four summers from 8 to 12 while we lived in that house building these amazing villages out of brick and sand. And I used to take twigs off the tree and set them in the sand and create walkways and driveways and things. So it was fun. So that was what you did when you were younger. And you then went on and, had, and got a more formal education in the type of work that you do. Well, interestingly, I'm a a guy that's been to the school of hard knocks. I started soil and plant technology and I quit. And I said, I, I can do this. Well, I took a lot of falls along the way. I've learned through experience of doing installations, working with people. Um, I do have a, a way of working with people that makes them feel comfortable, that makes them feel part of the solution, not standing on the sidelines while I come up with all of the answers. Um, and, um, so it was a very organic, no pun intended, a very organic way to get started in this industry. But it was almost like I had done it in a previous lifetime. I, I can't explain it, but it was one of those things uh, that's you just can't explain. So you had an intuitive w knowledge about what you needed to do 
to work with the earth and to also work with people who were also helping you sort of steward the earth. Yes, I, I, I did. I had. I was very fortunate. And as I've matured through the business, I've had. I've worked with uh, Indian an Indian shaman out west for four years, and worked with Carolyn Mace, as you have seen, and um, other people who have informed me about seeing a deeper connection in in our with our planet. Have you found when you work with your clients that when you understand their relationship and your relationship to them, you can create a more inviting space for them that brings them outside? Is that part of what you do? Oh, very much so. Uh, sometimes they think it's just a matter of, you know, I'm going to put in some plants and make my home prettier. But it's very, they, I take them on a journey. And we, we and, and it, it doesn't have to be an expensive journey. It can be sometimes uh, if their mom has died or if their uncle has died that they loved, we create a sacred area for them to honor their lives and to go to, to reflect and meditate. And they can be very simple installations, but they're very powerful. That, that's an interesting part of shamanism, actually, isn't it? That you can, not only can you, nature bring something to you, but you can go and leave something of yourself in a sacred place. That's precisely the point. And, and when I used to go out on my uh, journey quest with, with Lynch, we used to go into the desert, and we would always leave. I had a little pouch, and uh, he would, I would get something out of my little pouch and I would leave it and I would take a stone back with me but I would always leave something he taught me how to see we would pass a roadrunner or we'd pass a uh, 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 oh a hawk and he'd say I'd say oh look Lynch a hawk and he'd say Ted we just passed five or he'd uh, he'd say I'd say I'd be I'd be standing very still one of the things we had to the disciplines we had to do was stand absolutely still and just watch all the wildlife come around us and, and what would appear was a roadrunner. And I said, after it was all over, I said, well, the roadrunner was there. He said, Ted, there were three more behind you, behind the other side. You just weren't watching. So nature appears to us and speaks to us and talks to us in ways that are most extraordinary. I, had a, I was in Freeport, Maine, and I was giving a, a, um, a dedication. I, we landscaped this house. I, 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 I brought the sage, and I, I brought the feathers, and I, and I, I saged the area that uh, and there was a Buddha in the garden, and and I said, and I'd like to. Uh, so I had the couple join me, and I and raised and I saged, and I raised my shell up to invite. I said, I'd like to invite Mother Nature to join us today. And it was October, and in a moment's notice, in that instant, a thousand birds descended into the trees, and it was deafening. It was total silence, and then it was just deafening. And so they joined us, and when I, my, my ceremony was only like five minutes long. And when I was done, I, I, uh, I said, and I'd like to thank you, blackbirds, for joining us today. And I raised my, my feather and my shell up, and they left just like that, just that very instant. And it was quiet again. And they looked at me like, well, who are you? <laughs> and I said, look, guys, this wasn't me. I said, I don't have, there is no gift here. This is reaching out to nature so nature can talk to us and communicate with us. And this has happened to me time and time again. And I don't talk about it a lot because some people think you're crazy, but it really is there. We'll return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Robin Hodgkin, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in Portland, Maine. For all your investment needs, call Robin Hodgkin at 207-771-0888. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. And by Booth, Accounting and Business Management Services, Payroll and Bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmain.com for more information. Part of what I know you're trying to do in your book, Reunion, is to get people back to this fundamental aspect of life. And I, I, I'm reading this paragraph about seeds. 
This is what you have written about, um, actually it talks about World War II and the beginning of seed savers. But I like this idea of seeds because it's something that continues to exist as life even when life itself is threatened. Yes. So seed is a big deal. Its very meaning connotes totality, life producing life in a constant chain. It's the chicken and the egg separated by a little calendar time. All living things from a fungus to a Super Bowl quarterback begin as some form of seed. And it comes to the seed that, through the grace of good soil, water, and a cooperative climate, becomes the food that sustains us. Keeping it whole and safe must be instinctual. Let me read this sentence again. When it comes to the seed that, through the grace of good soil, water, and a cooperative climate, becomes the food that sustains us, Keeping it whole and safe must be instinctual, at least for the many scientists who spend their lives wondering at its miracles and saving it for future generations. So there is this importance to maintaining that, that, that essence, even when things are being threatened. So do you believe that we're in a state of threat right now? Oh, there's no question. I think that we, uh, this is not a, a doomsday thing that I'm talking about, but um, we basically have betrayed the earth and betrayed our connection to the earth uh, for the sake of short-term gain. And, and, and the natural forces don't work like that. Natural forces take time. It's take, taken millions upon hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, to make this planet. And in a hundred years, we've destroyed it, or we're, we're working very hard to destroy it. And that doesn't mean that we have to do with nothing or have nothing, but we have to be conscious about the choices we make. And sustainability issues are huge right now. They're going to get even, even bigger for our children. And um, you know, I'm 55. I think uh, I probably will have lived at the time of the most incredible. Uh, resource depletion rate that has ever existed on this planet. Just my short time, born from 1956. By the way, I was born on Earth Day, and my book arrived on my shell on, on my doorstep when it was published. It took three years to publish the book. It arrived on my doorstep on my birthday, the night before my birthday. So, um, you know, there's it that does it's sort of irrelevant, but it's just sort of interesting how the the universe continually speaks to us and uh, affirms that, you know, hey, you know, you're on the right track. These, these are not just, just synchronicities or just, you know, they are synchronicities, but they're, they're not happen chats, luck things. They're, they're, they're communication. It brings to mind when the tsunami in southern Southeast Asia occurred and there were warning signs that the local inhabitants and villagers knew because the tide sucked way out yes. an hour before the tsunami occurred. Yes. But all of the people who, the tourists and the people who were right. coming to recreate oh, excellent point. did not see this incredible change. And all of the villagers went, or not all, but most of them went to the highlands, but the rest of the tourist community was left on the beaches because they weren't paying attention. Yeah. And that's a terrible tragedy, and a, but an example of how we can get really cut off from what's all around us. That and is such a good, I love that story, and, and, and it is true, of course, and, and thank you for sharing that. So as someone who's very connected to the earth, are you seeing bellwethers in nature that show us that we're in, under this threat? Yes, there's three, there's three points that I'd like to make about that. One is the coronal mass ejection from the sun. Um, the other is the El Nino effect, and the other is carbon uh, in, that are it's put in the air by man. I mean, this car, this massive carbon inputs. I mean, coal plants, coal-fired power plants go on online in in China about every two or three weeks. So, I mean, we've got a huge amount of carbon being released from China uh, and other developing nations. And what's the El Nino effect? Uh, they're natural weather occurrences that that it's the change that it, it, it's sort of the um, I'm going to give you a very unscientific term, but it, it, it there, it's the ebb and flow of natural forces in the in the weather patterns, and it sometimes moves its way. You know, southern southern uh, uh, winds and things move up north and cause a, a distorted climatic uh, conditions, and it's it comes and ebbs and flows. I think it's about seven or ten year cycles. Just coincidentally, we've got the sun acting up and this El Nino, I think, at the same time. 
So these are the signs that we haven't been doing, well, at least the man's part of it is mm -hmm. a sign that we haven't been doing as good a job as we could be. Are there signs of hope that you've discerned? Are there some things that are telling you that maybe we're being a little bit more mindful of all of this than we used to be? Oh, absolutely. And my book is very good about describing all kinds of ways for us to do things on our own and take back this power. The, the, what I heard a lot when I was writing the book was people would say, oh, Ted, I'm just one person. What, what am I supposed to do? Well, the power of one is huge. Gandhi was one. Christ was one. Martin Luther King was one. You know, we all have a responsibility in this role. And we feel the human condition is greatly improved when we actually take part in, of something and help with the solution. That's part of what makes the human spirit grow. And it's not easy. But life isn't easy. And, and people who live difficult lives usually are some of the most interesting people you'll ever meet. You know, life isn't, isn't about being easy and comfortable. So well, this is the whole Viktor Frankl man's search for meaning. You live in a concentration camp and you come out the other side and you realize, okay, conflict can create life and mm -hmm. and hope. Right. Do you have some suggestions for people who are trying to be yeah. the one person? Oh yes, uh, I have lots of suggestions, but I'll try to be brief. Um, I have, uh, I mean. Water management is very important. Um, one of the things you have to keep in mind with fertilization is is phosphorus is very hard on fresh water sources, and nitrogen is very bad for for the oceans. So we need to really, really be discerning about how and when we fertilize. And, and if we can use organic fertilizers, great. But organic fertilizers doesn't mean it doesn't pollute. It still has nitrogen and phosphorus. So we, the runoff that goes into the natural watersheds is, is that's what we're struggling with in Maine. That's what we're having problems in our This in is our some of these waters. algae blooms that maybe yes, we see? absolutely. And it's the phosphorus coming off the roadways and the road systems and everything. It, let's work in communion with nature, in cooperation with her, not against her. We've worked against her for so long, trying to keep it in the way we think it should look. And we're, we're having to create new, new ways of engaging. I create beautiful landscapes. People love them. People, they just love them, but they're they're landscapes that, you know, it doesn't mean you can't have form and, 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 and beauty and everything like that, but you also need to work. It's an and in both world. It's not an either or world. Has that ever been a source of conflict for you, the work that you've done with Carolyn Mace and some of the spiritual work that you've, um, the paths that you've followed in the past? Well, I think you have to meet everybody at their own level. And not that I'm, it's not a, it's a uh, that's a matter of discernment. It's not a matter of judgment. But some people are ready to hear the message. Some people are not. Some people are halfway there. And what I try to do is just push them a little, little further along the path, just to sort of say, get out of your head, move into your heart. You know, when I start a lecture, I always have people close their eyes and move, move from your head and just feel your energy sink down to your heart. And through the heart, that's where the intuitive comes. It's the female energy. Male is the head, female is the heart. And the bridge is the neck. And that's why we have so many neck problems in this country. <laughs> Ted, how do people get in touch with you professionally? Well, I mean, it's hard to remember all these websites, but if you just put Ted Carter Landscaping Maine, I'll come up. I'm got I'm right up at the top. So uh, there's an, so. And do you work with acreage of all sizes? Oh, yes. I work with all types of landforms and sizes. and um, So if you have a small little postage stamp plot, still okay. Those are my favorite, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, yes. Well, I think this is a good place to end the sense that um, we all have the power to make changes in our small lives and our larger lives and starting with ourselves. And I know that this is something that you've espoused in your own life. So thank you for coming in and talking to us about this today, Ted. Thank you so much. Our bodies are often the first indicators that something isn't quite working. Are you having difficulty sleeping, anxiety, or chronic pain issues? Maybe you've had a job loss, divorce, or recent empty nest. Dr. Lisa specializes in helping people through times of change and inspiring individuals to create joyful, sustainable lives. 
Visit doctorlisa.org for more information on her Yarmouth, Maine medical practice and schedule your office visit or phone consult today. Today on our Earth Day edition of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we have the great good pleasure to be speaking with Penny Jordan, who is a fourth-generation farmer here in Maine, who grew up on the farm she currently operates alongside her brother and sisters. And this is Jordan's farm in Cape Elizabeth. In Cape Elizabeth, yeah. And Penny, you do so much more than just farming, although that's in itself a lot. Um, it's interesting because you also have over 30 years experience in project management and business planning. You have a master's degree in social work, um, focusing on community organizing and program design. I mean, just so many different directions that you've gone in, and yet you're kind of back to your roots. Right, right, so. right. I came back to uh, the farm in Cape Elizabeth in uh, the year 1999 when Unum and Provident merged. And so I was able to go on to graduate school for my uh, master's in social work with the intention of bringing youth to the farm. And uh, me, I, I had always wanted to do a, a nonprofit and really make it uh, based on agriculture because I think you learn so much from a work ethic and um, just connection with your uh, your roots, no pun intended, um, as you work on the farm. And uh, as I did that um, and completed that, it really, everything came together. And I always say that my time at Unum was probably my um, best education for, I call it my MBA um, in training. And so I took that and I uh, started working with my brother and my father and decided that I didn't want to leave the farm. I wanted to figure out how to take agriculture in our state and just bring it back to life. And uh, so that's kind of been my mission from since 1999. So tell us about your nonprofit. Well, uh, the nonprofit never happened. It was, and it had a name called Let Us Grow, and I did the whole program design and everything as my graduate thesis, and um, it it really was a very uh, good project, but it, it never came to fruition because I became immersed in uh, building the farm business uh, because I think many of you know that during the uh, 70s and 80s, agriculture in Maine kind of took a nosedive as a result of the California market, being able to move product to Boston a lot quicker. So uh, you have to take and re-engineer your business, and that's really where my, uh, my MBA from Unum came into play. Um, how do you re-engineer your business and capture a market and create um, a brand and create visibility for your business? And I think as we created visibility, um, that just helped that the business flourish. And with my uh, graduate degree, I became... Uh, uh, I would say, involved in a lot of different activities in agriculture because policy is also extremely important to me. And another thing that happened right at the same time that I came back to the farm was that we, my father wanted his farm to be a farm forever. And so we worked to uh, sell development rights and we were the first uh, farm in the southern Maine area to sell development rights, which means we retain ownership of the property. We uh, sell the right to develop that property from a housing perspective. And you can imagine in Cape Elizabeth that that was kind of a, a huge, huge step because people see land and they see houses. We see land, we see food. Um, and so we, we uh, transferred the um, the business from my father generation to my sisters and my brother and myself. And uh, I think with that experience and that visibility and my uh, understanding of nonprofit organizations, it helped me gain um, a position and a consulting position with Land for Good out of Keene, New Hampshire, which is, um, I, 
uh, has three important programs, but I think the one that I really want to stress here today, because it is Earth Day, um, is uh, everybody who owns property um, really has an opportunity to share that property and produce food. And at Land for Good, we call them non-farming landowners. And I would just uh, ask that people step back and look at the asset that they have, um, look out at their beautiful property and say, what is it that we can do with this besides have a beautiful green lawn? Because I think we all need to be thinking more about producing food. Well, that's an interesting point that you bring up that some people in the past people have looked at open land and seen houses, but you look at open land and see food. Mm -hmm. One thing that you've talked to me quite a bit about is that any soil can grow food given the proper enrichment. Yeah. So even if you're in the suburbs, you can have bees and you can have fruit trees and you can. Right. But you, so how does someone go about learning how to enrich their soil to grow food? Well, I always uh, go to my wonderful University of Maine Cooperative Extension and uh, look at those resources that are right here in our, our neighborhood. And you can also go to um, NRCS at the USDA, whether it be in, in southern Maine, it's in Scarborough. Those are our resources. And you can NRCS also, is? Uh, Natural Resources Conservation Services. and. Um, and you can talk with them about what you can do with your, your land. You can have your soils tested and you, that you send off to the University of Maine. Um, and so there's a lot of resources right here in our state. And if ever you have a question, if you've got a farmer in your neighborhood, you just go down the street and stop, wave them down and say, I got a question. And I don't think you'll meet many farmers who won't stop and talk to you about how you can go about having a, a garden or what you can do with your, your property. A farm friendly is uh, an important step for all towns to be taking. And that's a, that's a phrase out of UNH. They created that whole list of what makes checklist of how you make your town farm friendly. We'll return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Akari, an urban sanctuary of beauty, wellness, and style, located on Middle Street in Portland, Maine's Old Port. Follow them on Facebook and learn more about their new boutique and medispa at akaribeauty.com. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, makers of Dr. John's Brainola cereal. Find them on the web at orthopedicspecialistsme.com. So that's how you make your town farm friendly, and you've talked a little bit about how you make your, I don't know, you can create backyard. your own little backyard um, farming. Uh -huh. are, what are things that people can do to bring the farms into their, or food from local farms into their household? Where can people access this food? Um, I, I would say that the best thing that you can do when you think about uh, how can I accomplish two things. Uh, one is having healthy food in my home. Two is ensuring you have vibrant farms. Um, if you have the time and the inclination, which there's only a, a percentage of the population that will do this, and I recognize that because everybody's busy. First choice should be to purchase directly from the farm. And we have things in Maine called CSA shares. CSAs, do you want yeah. Community Supported Agriculture, and you will you'll see that um, many farms offer this, and it's and it's a key part of the strategy right now for uh, strong you know, creating a strong business because you get upfront uh, startup dollars um, and you're really buying into the farm season. And I know Mofka um, has on their website a list of all of the CSAs, and it's not just for organic farms, it's all CSAs. 
And uh, let's just explain that you buy in, and then every week you get, or every two weeks, you get a box of produce or meat or dairy or whatever right. it is you've signed there's, up. There's several different models. The model that I know that had been, and I don't know if Stacy and John have changed, but I know that in the past at Broad Turn Farm, they did kind of the box model, and then they migrated to a little self-select. I know that Laughing Stock Farm up in uh, Freeport, they do a box accompanied by add-ins and a little select. Ours is a full self-select model. So you come and shop at the farm stand and select whatever you want. So you've really bought in and you've paid money up front. And um, you can either uh, buy at our farm stand or we have a traveling farm stand that goes to business sites, which is a renovated school bus, the Partridge family bus. Yeah, that's very creative. And you also go to the farmer's markets. Uh, We do not go to farmer's markets. Uh, We have an on-site farm stand. We have our uh, traveling farm stand, and we have online, which is called Cape Farms Market. So we have three different ways that you can purchase retail, which is purchased directly from the farmers. Uh, With our online system, Cape Farms Market, we probably carry products. The whole premise around that was to have a 12-month proposition from a business perspective to uh, sell our products 12 months out of the year and to create visibility in southern Maine for the breadth and depth of products that are available 12 months out of the year from Maine farms and Maine fishermen. And we have probably 30 farms that are on our online market. And so you can order from vegetables to meats to um, grains to dairy to whether it be, we started offering goat this last time around. And so basically, it's if I achieve my goal, everybody will know everybody who shops on our online market will be able to serve 100% main produced food 12 months out of the year. That's my goal. You have a lot of things on the horizon and you are one of the best uh, spokespeople for farming in Maine. So I know there's something exciting happening very soon. Yeah, this is really exciting. Uh, The New England Farmers Union, which I'm a member of, um, it's having a farmer fly-in. They do farmer fly-ins twice a year to Washington, D.C. And we're leaving on the 16th of April, and there were five farmers selected from New England, and I got to be one of them, which I I said, I don't know why, but I know I have a lot of opinions. And and so we're going to fly in, and we're going to meet with the ag, committee with Shelley and company and uh, we'll be meeting with appropriations so uh, and basically the whole uh, idea is that we bring farmers into Washington DC to talk about the importance of the farm bill and that we do need to pass a farm bill and a key part of that farm bill uh, Shelley Pingree has uh, crafted and it really has to do with greater access to local foods you'll find that some farmers are talking about that yeah that talks about uh, the food in the, I would say, more of the market part of it, but we also need to address production. And um, my premise is that if you create the demand and you create the pull and you move the product in, the infrastructure is going to have to be created to support it. And so I think this Farm Bill is exciting because it's going to force a truing up of our infrastructure in Maine. The tail will wag the dog. You got it. You got it. We're good at that in Maine. It's the only way. The only way we're going to build our infrastructures from the ground up, and we're going to have to build it ourselves. And so, what I say is, if you get money into the hands of the farmers, they are true entrepreneurs, and they are going to create the infrastructure to support their products. And then, in five years, you will see Maine Foods as the premier foods in the Boston market again. We're going to take it back from California. Well, you have a lot of exciting things going on, and. Yep. I want to be able to direct people to your website so they can find out more about the um, the online ordering and uh-huh. some of the other things you're doing. So tell us where they can reach you. Uh, they can find us at uh, jordansfarm.com. It's Jordans with an S, 
and farm without an S, so jordansfarm.com. And there should be information there about our CSA, about our online market, and we try to keep our front page pretty current um, so that people can have quick access to what's going on. And of course, Jordan's Farm on uh, Facebook, uh, Jordan's Farm on Twitter. Um, and pretty soon Jordan's Farm is going to have a QR code, so you'll be able to scan us when you're in a restaurant. And uh, so we just kind of keep trying to stay progressive. And uh, you can always just drive out to Wells Road in Cape Elizabeth and take a look at the most beautiful view in Cape Elizabeth, and which will be there forever. And it is beautiful. I've been out there. I've yes. bought stuff from oh, your good. farm stand, so I can, I can attest to that. Good. And people can also read about you in the main magazine yeah. issue, which I can't remember when that was. was. Last, last I think autumn. it was last uh, August or September or something like that. Yeah. And we will link to it online yeah. through the Dr. Yeah. Lisa website. That was a good article. She did a good job on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so, com- so much for coming in Thank today, Penny. Thank you. And uh, thank you very much for knowing that growing food is important to our state. So thanks. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. And by Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. With offices in Yarmouth, Maine, the Shepard Financial team is there to help you evolve with your money. For more information on Shepard Financial's refreshing perspective on investing, please email tom at shepardfinancialmaine.com. Today on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we have with us two representatives from the Tidewater Conservation Foundation, and this is David Banks and Bill Lunt, and they represent very different aspects of how we um, create open space, how we bring farming into a community, how we do with what we've had in the past and bring it into the future, so thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. And I have Genevieve Morgan sitting next to me. It's a pleasure to meet you. You were telling me a little bit before we went on, before we came on the air, Bill, about how you came to be involved in the Tidewater Conservation Foundation. But let me back up and first ask, what is the Tidewater Conservation Foundation? The, the, the foundation was a piece of a development project which the town made a master plan for. And the, the Conservation Foundation is the overseer of the conservation land. And uh, it's a nonprofit, 501c3. And uh, our charge is to oversee how that conservation land is used. And we have some parameters we have to work around, and that is there has to be anything that happens there has to be related to education, agriculture, or the arts, or a combination of all three. And so that's how, that's how the foundation is operating down there. And, and this uh, is located in what town? Falmouth. In it's, Falmouth. It's, yeah, it's between 295 Route 1 and the Lunt Road and Presumpscot River. And Lunt Road, is, could that be named for your family it's by any chance? Yes. Is it possible, right? <laughs> yes. And David, you also live in Falmouth. You, your primary job is as a realtor, correct? Th- that's correct. I cover the greater Portland area. Falmouth is a town I brought my family up in, and I live currently in the town of Falmouth. So how do each of you relate to this project, to the Tidewater Conservation pro- Project? Uh, I, I am the side of it that, that's keeping the open space active and using it under the parameters that the town says it has to be used under. David's the fellow who brings in the proper people to, uh, to make it financially happen. And that, and those are both fairly important pieces in this day and age. Absolutely. Um, David, what kinds of challenges have you found being sort of really involved in the business and the financial aspects of all of this? You know, one of the, the most important part of this was to find people that wanted to buy homes surrounded by this community. And it really turned um, back in 2005 when the development got approved, it became a real positive um, part of our marketing that people wanted to be surrounded by this open space and the diversity of things that would be happening in the space. Um, we were 
at the very early part of this concern about how would people view this and it's turned the neighborhood it's about 95 percent sold out and we have a total of 50 homes surrounding this property and it's been extremely positive is that because people don't want to live around farming is what was the hurdle i think one of the questions was that you know would you see a lot of different activity on the land instead of just seeing it not used at all um, worried about or concerned about the farming um, would it attract um, more people in the summertime and it really hasn't it's actually turned very positive um, it's also opened up the wildlife um, in the community in the open space and um, people enjoy seeing the different activity in the neighborhood and as a, to follow up on that a little bit, we, we started a very early uh, partnership with the University of Maine, Orono, and the uh, Cumberland County Cooperative Extension. And they are now, they have bought one of, the, one of the units in the commercial part of the development, so their offices are now on Clearwater Drive in Falmouth. And they have demonstration gardens going on out there, and they, they, it's all about the education. And uh, we're in the process right now, the foundation is in the process right now of signing some longer term leases with the Cooperative Extension through the University of Maine. And also we've got a collaboration with uh, the Center for African Heritage and the Cultivating Communities in Portland. So we've got three other entities that are involved in the education and farming side of it. So I think that's another reason that the people and the residents are more excited because they see that this is a really beneficial issue of keeping open space but not just leaving it laying there. Yeah. It's, it's very unique for our community, the greater Portland area, to have this opportunity. Why the African education piece? That seems not that it's not connected. Well, tell me. Well, how is it connected? All right. The, one of the real strong issues that the University of Maine, the Cooperative Extension, is, in, is involved in is education for teaching business people, small businesses, uh, to pe teach people how to farm, how to actually run a farm. So this is why the, the Center for African Heritage and Cultivating Communities came out. It's because they can now bring out people and they can have people from the university that work with them and they can learn how to do the farming, how to do a business plan for a farm, and the idea is to use it as an incubation so that we can go from here and move out to another place somewhere else in, in Cumberland County or even further away and start another farm. Well, it's interesting in what, two generations we've become so separated from <laughs> how to farm? <laughs> it sort of seems so elemental to the human experience. Yeah, you, you bet. I, I've, I personally have been involved in farming all my life. Uh, my dad ran a, had a greenhouse, which was abutting this property as well, beside my house. So I grew up raising plants and, and working with the ground. So this is another reason that I got so involved in it. And it, it, uh, I've been teaching people how to compost the old-fashioned way before it became chic. Uh, you know, the composting doesn't necessarily have to be done in a barrel. It can be done just by piling it up if you oh, do it I'm properly. I'm so glad to, s to hear you say that because people have been making fun of me for years because I've had a compost pile with nothing around it and I've been fine with it, but that you can actually do that. That's legitimate. Absolutely. Sure. And, and I personally, on my own property, I have two compost piles. I have one that I'm building and one that I just let there sit and cook. And then I have a third pile that's been depleted because I'm taking out of it. So I, I probably generate somewhere in the vicinity of three and a half to four yards of material every year on just my own, my own residence. My dad created somewhere in the vicinity of 15 to 18 yards through the greenhouse. So it, it can be done. It's a little slower than the fancy way, but it's really easy, doesn't take up a lot of room, and it's very, very pleasing when you think at the end of the day you've got some soil that is really good stuff. I personally uh, brought up three children, uh, and I have two acres of land total, and I raised my family on all of the garden needs were done by us, and my wife and I did all the preserving canning and stuff in the fall, and we used to set aside about 700 quarts every year. So my family lived out of the garden. My two boys still live in town, and my two boys and their families have now decided they, they want to use my property to raise stuff. So I've now 
quadrupled the size of my garden so that my two families can go along with it. So we're working together now. So you can do it on a relatively small piece of land. Uh, chickens, uh, definitely a big, everyone wants chickens now. And, and the towns have really um, provided opportunities for families to have their own chickens and stuff. But that is definitely um, a new requirement by a number of families. Um, still within the Falmouth, Cumberland, North Yarmouth, Greater Portland area. So when people are looking to buy a house and you're looking to sell them a house, they actually are asking, can I have can, chickens here? I, by all means. Soon it will be a cow. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're just going to work our way yeah. on up on that. But no, it's great. Well, I believe that there are going to be people listening who are going to want more information about the work that you're doing. So what's the best way to find out about the Tidewater Conservation Foundation and your project? We are in the process right now of building a website so that we can be out there where people can get to us. But right now, the easiest way to get to the Conservation Foundation would be to go through the the Cumberland County Cooperative Extension on Clearwater Drive in Falmouth. It's a piece of the University of Maine. Well, and we should give them credit. The University of Maine and the Cooperative Extension has come out as a name many, many times. And this seems to have been an old-fashioned sort of farm thing, but now it's like becoming chic again, I guess. Yeah, we, we had a tremendous amount of help from a, a, a very dear friend of mine who passed away a year ago, uh, Stanley Bennett, who's president of Oakhurst Dairy. And Stan got, he's the one that really started pushing me harder than, you know, I was in there to keep the land open. Stan came along and said, now you got it open, let's make it work. So Stan Bennett and the Bennett family from Oakhurst have been extremely helpful as well. David, you said the neighborhood is 95% full. How do people reach you if they're interested in the last 5%? Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, contact me at Remax by the Bay in Portland. And again, it's David Banks. Um, and... If you look at the trend of what's happened in the last six years, even though the market was a little slow, um, this has been the number one neighborhood selling in Greater Portland, and it's because of the community it surrounds. So, Well, and we know that on, and on the Dr. Lisa Radio Arm podcast, we're all about creating sustainable um, efforts for our health and wellness. So it sounds like with the, the business and the land, it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. So we give you lots of kudos for that, and thank you for being in here today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 32, Earth Day, airing itself on Earth Day. April 22nd, 2012. This week's guests included Ted Carter, landscape architect and author of the book Reunion, How We Heal Our Broken Connection to the Earth, Penny Jordan of Jordan Farms, and David Banks and Bill Lunt of Tidewater Conservation in Falmouth. Of course, we at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast believe that you as a listener most likely celebrate every day as Earth Day. We know that as part of our community, you understand the importance of health and wellness and the connection between yourself and the place in which we all spend time, the earth. We hope that you will continue to be a part of our world, download our podcast, subscribe to our iTunes podcast on a weekly basis, like us on the Dr. Lisa Facebook page, and let us know how you think we're doing. We truly believe that what we're doing is creating a community of like-minded individuals, or even not like-minded individuals, but people who might be inspired by the types of fascinating people that we interview on a weekly basis. We hope that you'll let us know how we're doing and also maybe send us some ideas. Thank you for joining us on this planet, the planet Earth. Have a great Earth Day. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for being a part of our world. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Booth, UNE, the University of New England, and Akari. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded in downtown Portland at the offices of Maine Magazine on 75 Market Street. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Editorial content produced by Chris Cast and Genevieve Morgan. 
Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Jane Pate. For more information on our hosts, production team, main magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at doctorlisa.org. And tune in every Sunday at 11 a.m. for the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour on WLOB Portland, Maine, 1310 a.m., or streaming wlobradio.com. Show summaries are available at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Mm-hmm.